0: And I see a young buck track, and it's after about November 5th. Oh, man, I'm glad I'm not following him because I know he's going to go a long ways because he can't get any does from these bigger bucks that are controlling these herds, where a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times if I find a bigger buck, he's kind of a homebody. As long as the does are in heat there, you know, he's not traveling far. Again, completely anecdotal, completely a layman perspective. The Rockcast is powered by Onex Hunt, and for good reason. Onex Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. Stay tuned for a Rockcast promo code. Mule deer exists throughout the Western US, Canada, and parts of Mexico. Mule deer are managed throughout those jurisdictions based on the best data available. Some of the most common data that managers use are a combination of population estimates, composition information, adult and fawn survival potential harvest success number harvested disease issues habitat quality and large-scale habitat changes such as wildland fire these data combined with the desires of the hunting public are the basics of what wildlife managers use to make recommendations for season proposals if a manager could dream They would have all this data annually to help them make the best informed decision to balance mule deer biology requirements with the hunting public desires. Welcome to the Rockcast, everybody. That information I just read came from a chapter in my second book, Hunting Big Mule Deer, The Stories, titled The Perils of Bucks Only Hunting. And it was written by today's guest. Please welcome Toby Boudreau, Idaho State Deer and Elk Coordinator for the Idaho Department of Fish and Game. Good morning, Toby. Good morning, Robbie. How you doing? Hey, good, man. Um, every time I read that chapter in the book you guys wrote, I, I realized how deep these issues are surrounding wildlife management. And uh, it's just the kind of stuff we like to talk about on the ROCKcast. So I really appreciate you coming on.
1: No, it's, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, looking forward to our conversation.
0: All right. Well, it's late May. We probably won't have this podcast out until about the time that the uh, applications are due in Idaho for the controlled hunts, which is June 5th. Uh but this this information is kind of timeless that I talk about with Toby here. Um, I've worked with Toby on and off for oh my goodness 5, 10 years. How long have you been in that position, Toby?
1: I have been um I've been in this position for 4 years total, but um I'm unbelievably, uh, believe it or not, um, I met you 18 years ago, Robbie. So when I moved to Idaho, wow,
0: time is flying, buddy. Was this clear back on the on the mule deer project Idaho Fishing Game was doing the habitat improvement project?
1: The Mule Deer Initiative, yes. There
0: you go. The Mule Deer Initiative. My goodness, 18 years. No wonder <laughs> it looks so bad in the mirror in the morning when I get up. It's just time is just flying here, buddy. So um and, and I do remember you were located here in the Idaho Falls office for a while, right?
1: I was actually in Pocatello, was Pocatello, that's what it was. Yeah.
0: I get them all mixed up because I go to all of them. So um, I'm kind of a a fishing game groupie, you know, always hanging around the office, you know, picking up any tips I can from guys like you. So uh, anyways, it's it's always been a pleasure to talk to you. You've been a great wealth of knowledge. I'm sure you've learned a lot about
1: mule deer in the last 18 years. Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah, they're uh, they're an amazing critter, Uh, a true icon of Western hunting. And, uh, you know, I just I love mule deer. Really do. I think
0: there's a whole bunch on this podcast that do too. So, anyways, well, uh, we're going to specifically talk about you know Idaho today, and uh, I, the, the the big thing on everybody's mind around here, at least this part of Idaho where we we had especially tough winter, was uh, was winter kill. And 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 I was just wondering, you know, I know you you work across the state, so you're not just focused on you know southeast Idaho. But uh, w- what do you have for our listeners on kind of an Idaho winter wrap up as far as as late late may is concerned. I know we still got a little more time to go before we report our collar data, but but what what do you think so far?
1: Yeah, that's a great question and you know, we do actually monitor our radio-collared fawns uh through the end of May mostly because it's not just the winter that um, affects their survival, but also that transition back onto green, high-protein foods, which you know is is incredibly hard on their on their digestive system, and basically causes them to have that lag at the end where they uh, they have to transition over. So we monitor the end of May statewide. Um, it was a rough winter. Uh, not as rough in some places, but still, um, it was, uh, you know, the long-term average mortality for mule deer fawns. And we don't collar everywhere every year. Um, most of the mule deer fawn collaring that we do now are to, is to inform our, uh, and help basically, uh, sure up uh, some of the models that we use to estimate mule deer populations in between surveys mm-hmm. and, you know, our average, and we've been doing this since 1997, uh, in the state and our long-term average mortality of fawns is about 50%, uh, which that's good years, bad years, everything in between, um, so this year was in the, you know, I've been in Idaho since 2005 and definitely this year lines up to be as bad as the 2016-17 two, year. And again, um, the 2010-11 year um, where I was uh, actually in the Southeast region where we saw you know, the, the, the higher mortality. So statewide right now, as of the end of April, because we do this by month, uh, we were at uh, 67% fawn mortality statewide. That's, but that's only makes up three populations that we actually had collared. And one of them was in the heart of the worst winter where we had 92% fawn mortality of the collared individuals. Now, right that that doesn't necessarily mean that 92 percent of the fawns in the entire area uh perished over the winter we do know that toward idaho falls uh a little bit farther north because these the the 92 percent mortality was definitely um in the very southeast corner of idaho and it saw the worst part of that winter storm barrage that it took um you know and it's not only the it was it wasn't only the snow but it was also cold it gets really cold there like 35 below was recorded in montpelier uh several days in a row and that's tough on a little little animal and it is uh but it is interesting you know of the 30 fawns that we collared down in that part of the world two survived and they were the only two that were weighed hundred pounds when we collared them.
0: <laughs> Just like and, all you guys have all been telling us over the years, if we can get them to ninety or hundred pounds, they do pretty good.
1: Yeah, and 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 in that same part of the world, if they don't weigh seventy by Christmas, their their chances of survival are extremely low, and that sort of reflects back on the quality of the habitat that we need to yeah. uh, to sustain you know healthy milder populations. As far as uh, you know looking at does and we have um we 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 have does collared in more places than we do fawns because of course fawns it's uh you basically we collar them in December and they're no longer a fawn by the by about the 5th of June when they have their first birthday and their yearlings. So but looking at doe mortality uh statewide was uh was 19%. Um, which is, which is not good, but it's, it's not, the, the world hasn't ended. Um, it's, it's not, it's not, not catastrophic. And, and not that's cat- through
0: April as well. Is that correct?
1: That's through April as well. Yeah. Now, you know, in, in, the, in the worst part areas, um, it was, uh, we actually had 33% dome mortality in unit 76, which is in that very Southeast corner of Idaho, and, and that is bad. Um, but if you look at those other bad years that we've had in the last 20, um, it it sort of lines up with those other bad years. So it's not, it wasn't catastrophic beyond what we've already seen and recovered from. And that's the important part is, you know, mule deer have the incredible ability to rebound in population. I will say that you know obviously when we have bad winters and we have even recorded in small areas 90 plus percent mortality of fawns we lose that cohort of animals bucks and does so in 5 years when we're looking for that 24 to 28 inch wide buck um there's going to they they, they they won't be on the hillside um, you know there'll be older bucks and there'll be younger bucks, but there won't be that that age class and and obviously this fall there won't be a lot of two points on the hill um, in 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 those areas. So the other important thing about winter that we have to consider is that there's also a lag in the effect of winter because all the does that survived that eighty one percent that survived statewide sixty seven percent that survived in that general area their body condition was reduced to the point where their fawns are going to be born they'll probably uh weigh less than optimal in the spring and then they'll have to work real hard to get their body condition back up to where they're producing twins because after a mule deer is has her first single twin they usually have twins for at least the next six years, uh, pretty regularly, and then sort of alternate between twins and singles after that. So there's hold def- on
0: just a second. Yeah, I, I might have misunderstood you. Uh, a single twin, or you mean, I mean the yes, first I mean, time sorry, they have single, twins. a single fawn? Sorry. Single fawn. Yep. Okay, so they have a single fawn, and then for the next six years, they, they have twins. Did I follow that? Yep.
1: If they're on a if they're on a good plane of diet. Uh, mule deer um, usually have a single fawn the first year and then and and then after that they twin for about the next six years and then they start as the as the doe gets older they start usually um either going back to single fawns or alternate between single and twins for until until they no longer you know are on the earth so and that's all real that's all a, a reflection of their age and their habitat and and their body condition because really body condition regulates fawn production everywhere and i th- it's, so there's going to be a lag in that so so, 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 so
0: uh, at best they may have a fawn and but that fawn may be underweight and if we don't have a great summer and great fall, they may not make it to those higher weights.
2: That yeah,
1: and a- absolutely. And the, so the thing is, is that that lag, you know, in I, I think in, you know, in the spring of 25, uh, we're going to be back on track as long as we don't have any bad winters between now and then. And mule deer have the ability to increase, you know, up to 28% per year if everything's perfect. I'm glad
0: you say that because, you know, it's always doom and gloom after these hard winters. But, you know, I'm old enough to remember, I get them mixed up. It was either 82, 83 or 83, 84. We had, or, or excuse me, 85, 86, right around in there. We had two pretty dang hard winters back to back. We didn't have any fond data back then, but, you know, it was bad. You could drive up Ammon Lincoln here, dead deer everywhere. Not a lot different than what we see on years like this. And yet the late eighties were some of the best deer hunting since the peak of deer hunting in the sixties. And, you know, this is all just, you know, hunter talk, you know, how, how hunters feel the data may reflect different times and everything, but you know, the late eighties, we had awesome deer hunting and, and, you know, good bucks and good numbers of bucks. And so we re- we even recovered from two back to back hard winters when we should have or could have lost two fawn crops in a row or at least a higher percentage of them and so you know it, this the, the deer have been dying for eons and they're going to continue to die uh they're the, we, we can't save them all and you know there's my, my daughter just found some baby rabbits out in the backyard here and and you know the rabbits are, are notoriously famous for just you know breeding and breeding and having babies you know multiple batches a year and, and, and while a deer is not a rabbit boy under ideal conditions these does start throwing two fawns a year and they're healthy fawns and good habitat. We grow fast when that starts happening.
1: A- absolutely. And, you know, I think, you know, my, my own experience here in Idaho um, sort of speaks to that incredibly. And that is, you know, we had the 2010, 2011 winter, which was horrible. Uh, You know, we had feed sites everywhere. We had elk getting hit by cars crossing highways and trying to keep them on one side of the road. We had feed sites all over southeastern Idaho. And yet, and we had really high mortality, higher than average mortality. And yet, by 2015, we had the most, the highest harvest and the most number of hunters hunting mule deer in Idaho. In in the previous, you know, 15 years, it was, it was incredible. I Uh, thought
0: it even went back to, it even went back to the days of 90, pre 92, 93, like we were hitting those success levels.
1: Yeah. And and 92, 93, you know, when I moved to Idaho in 2005, that was, that's still fresh in people's minds and it was bad all over North America. Yes, it was. Uh, I was in Alaska and we had, we basically where I was in Alaska, we lost 90% of the, of the moose calves. It -hmm. was that bad. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: It takes a lot to kill a moose calf, Uh, but yeah, no, it's uh, they have an incredible ability to rebound and, you know, based on all the work that we have done as far as research goes and what affects mule deer, definitely, winter is a huge effect. And then the secondary thing is having, um, you know, good habitat during the summer, having those, you know, wet conditions where vegetation can grow and, and mule deer can, can get fat because really mule deer put their groceries on their back to go into winter. It's not, they can't gain weight over winter. They're always losing weight. They're always at a deficit. And that's why, you know, being up on the hillside, you know, when mule deer drop their antlers in December is hard on deer. Mm -hmm. Because if the snow is more than eight inches deep, that's energetically costing a mule deer to move from where it wants to be.
0: Yeah, gl- I'm glad you bring that up, kind of a side issue, but, you know, the whole, sh- the whole shed hunting closures, which are so controversial, uh, you know, Wyoming just opened theirs up a couple weeks ago. They delayed it two weeks because of the hard winter, which I thought was a good decision, but there's still a very vocal group out there saying these don't help, you know, they're unenforceable, let's not do them. And I I hear that stuff and I'm thinking, you know, I go back to 2000 when I could go shed hunt anywhere and hardly see anybody, not even see a truck, let alone somebody out on the hill. And yet shed hunting is, is, you know, become so popular, infinitely popular now that nobody is convincing me having, I don't know if it's thousands, at least hundreds of guys out on the winter range during that critical time is not hurting the deer it's that it's not affecting them and 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 i you know i I hear idaho is working on coming up with a with a statewide shed season to get in line with all the other states and as much as much as i hate to have restrictions if it helps our deer i'm willing to accept it
1: yeah and a critical and i don't want to go down a rabbit trail on this but you know the idaho legislature did pass a rule that said the idaho fish and game commission now has the ability to regulate not only wildlife but their parts and before that as you said it was unenforceable because the commission has the authority over had the authority only over the wildlife and not their parts and other states uh clearly articulated in their uh, re- regulations and authorities of the commissions, their commissions, that they have that authority. So it does make a difference in some places, obviously, um, you know, there are people that, you know, don't abide by rules, but had a great meeting in, in Utah with a bunch of uh, different States talking about the effects of, uh, shed hunting regulations. And some States actually say that it, it, it does make a difference. Um, in 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 how animals are being forced around on the hillside, and um but it but it is complicated and it is a growing thing that you know a lot of people in the West like to go up and look for sheds.
0: Right, right, and and I'm all for that. If the more people love wildlife, the better chance we have of keeping them around. But you know, if our you know sometimes we love them to death, and and if our own activities are, are causing uh problems then it you know we we, we got to take a look at it and so that'd be great as 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 these shed seasons become more established and studied if, if we actually had some hard data you know because i'm flexible if it doesn't make a big difference then you know why have all the restrictions but if there is data that shows no these these deer are are experiencing a uh, higher survival rate boy that that's worth it with you know that can offset some of the things that have the deer have taken on the chin over the last 20 years, you know, habitat encroachment and things like that. Um, and, and it was documented, uh, Weber state university back in the eighties or nineties, um, there was a book, Mule Deer Quest, Walt Prothero, uh, just just a real small sample size, uh, just looking at deer right there on the Wasatch. And man, there's been nowhere that's had more encroachment on mule deer than the Wasatch front uh, and not just by shed hunters, but just, you know, just people in general. And And, you know, he was observing higher survival rate in individual deer, again, a small sample size, even back then and you know that was before the onslaught of 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 a lot of people on the winter range and so anyway don't want to hijack the whole podcast with that but but you know that's that's one one more thing if if we can help mule deer with i'm all for it and uh, and the great thing about shed seasons is the antlers are still there when the season opens now i know there's a few guys saying no people cheat they go out yep people cheat and don't buy a fishing license people cheat and take two deer that's always always what's going to be going on but if if any uh season is enforceable by the public it's the shed season because it's pretty easy to spot a truck out on the winter range uh picking up antlers uh when they're not supposed to be and i you know i know guys that have the the live where there's shed closers or shed restrictions. And we've got a few shed closures around here that had nothing to do with fish and game, just BLM closers. And man, there's a truck pulled off the side of the road. They are on the phone with the game warden, letting them know, hey, there's there's somebody here. Their tracks are going out there and everything. So I, I don't want to just lay down and say, oh, it's not enforceable, so let's not do it. No, I, th- I think it's probably highly enforceable, especially if the public gets involved. And, and I know if you know there's a chance of picking up the shed in May, if I just wait, then, yeah i'm going to be very motivated to make sure other people are are waiting too
1: yeah and, and i will tell you that obviously the commission the F- Idaho Fish fishing game commission is not going to make any changes to those or enact anything without a public process sure. so yeah. um, you know we'll be we'll, we'll be working on uh, you know sort of a a suite of options for them. And it will be uh, coming up at future meetings because they're concerned and they have been concerned for a long time. And and, uh, yeah, it's, and when other states around you all enact rules like that, it sometimes drives people to the states that don't have them yet.
0: Oh, it does. It totally does. I I know personally people that come to Idaho because the Wyoming is closed and um, Utah kind of has a rolling shed closure. So like they had it this year because of the harsh winter. And so, yeah, you just get more people here. And so it's it's different than it was 20 years ago when we, we used to have a shed season in Idaho. A lot of people don't remember this. We had a shed season and we got rid of it some of the reasons we talked about wasn't enforceable stuff like that but things have changed back then and that there there's way more people on the winter range now than there was then because of these other states um, using using shed closures so I'm glad you brought up the pub- public process I know there's people on both sides of this issue and uh you know people just heard my my opinion on it but if you have an opposite opinion there is going to be a Uh, public process and watch for it. Everybody should be following Idaho Department of Fish and Game on social media and their website. They'll announce this. They never hide these things. I see all kinds of information all the time on on public input and people will have a chance to comment on this. And And if you can make a case that it's better to just leave it wide open and not have a shed season, well, that's what that process will be there for. Absolutely. All right. Well, cool. So um, anyways, it uh, looks, looks like so uh, 67% w- uh, fawn mortality statewide is what we've seen um, uh, average. And then 19% doe mortality average is what we've seen with a high of 33% doe mortality in the Southeast region. Uh, I don't believe Idaho is collaring many bucks. Am I correct? That's correct. Okay. Yeah, we so have- we don't- we
1: don't we have, have bugs, any, any data yeah. on that, and yeah, and and we 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 are actually engaged in uh, something we're calling a buck vulnerability study to look at to to, to look at buck harvest, um, but the numbers of radios on those animals. It's it's been we we've had to do a lot of research and development on basically ways. To collar them uh, because bucks grow giant necks in the in the in the fall and yeah. um, but anyways we are working on that but no there's we we didn't we didn't see an adverse amount of buck mortality on those uh those few radios that we have on bucks Um, A a couple things from,
0: from the states that have, Utah's got some bucks collared, Wyoming's got some bucks collared. And, you know, again, these are small sample sizes compared to our fawn and our doe studies that have been going, you know, 20 years plus and, you know, hundreds and thousands of animals collared. But one thing I read that was interesting was we always assumed buck mortality was a lot higher than doe mortality because of the rut. But, again small sample sizes that's not what some of these states are reporting they're it's kind of right in line with doe mortality if it's if it's if it's different it might be slightly higher but it's not significantly higher i thought that was interesting and it would be great to have more studies going on on um you said idaho may do it on buck harvest did you mean buck mortality or just buck harvest like a hunter harvest well
1: it's it's it's, it's on overall yeah mortality but i mean our our focus is what are the effects of, you know, different regulations on buck harvest and vulnerability to harvest? So, yeah, that's gotcha. sort of the focus. Okay.
0: Well, every time I get a wildlife ma- manager on here, I always offer up my services, man. If you ever need somebody to be in charge of these GPS collars for bucks, I don't really want to mess with the does and fawns. You guys got that covered. But, man, I'm your huckleberry. Just just give me the codes. Give me the software. I'll I'll follow all these bucks as long as you want me to. Anywhere they go.
1: Appreciate appreciate the
0: offer,
2: Robbie.
0: <laughs> Move that to kind con- kind of the higher ups for me there, Toby. You've got my email. So, anyways, um, uh, so with thirty three percent is our highest mortality on 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 deer. That's in our southeast region. Um, if if you had to take a stab at it, let's just keep it to regions, not units. Idaho has seven regions. Correct, Toby. That's correct seven regions which which region would toby be wanting to go deer hunt in this year considering the winter kill he wanted to avoid that
1: you know on, honestly i would go in any one of the seven regions um I, I, obviously there are places that have higher mule deer numbers you know mule deer antler growth um is a lot of it of course as we've talked about earlier is based on habitat and if you look at the entire state sort of the end of the great basin if you look at it from a from 30,000 feet or mm-hmm. or you know miles up from satellite imagery the end of the great basin is still the best place for mule deer to grow mm-hmm. it has the highest productivity soils and thus um you know if you're looking for mature mule deer that's still the place to go so it's it's still the it's still the eastern half of the state um, is a is is great you know
2: gotcha. it, and, and, it, and it will be great
1: the northern extent
0: of the great basin what what do we consider that the salmon river
1: actually um if you if you pull up to i don't know thirty five thousand feet above idaho you can or fifty thousand feet you can actually see where the big desert comes up and ends yes and the big desert um well you know what the big desert is it's mm-hmm. Uh, that big lava, um, you know, lava pockets that basically go from Idaho falls all the way to, uh, you know, twin falls, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that really is the end of the great basin. So all that stuff, South and East of there, you know, from, from the Southern, Southern part of the salmon, uh, region all the way through, uh, the magic Valley. Gotcha. Gotcha. Gotcha.
0: Well, hey, good good to know. What was our lowest uh so far through April? What was our lowest mortality region? Or do you have it broken down that way, or is it just by their so herds?
1: For fawns, uh the lowest mortality was actually um so we only monitored fawns in three of the um, DAUs, which are you know just uh, data analysis units and that was actually in western idaho uh the weezer mccall was the lowest that we got gotcha. you we- uh,
0: and that's what i was thinking i've been to boise this spring for my daughter's soccer and i just noticed that you know they just did not have the snowpack over there it looked kind of like an ideal winter they were getting water yet there were bare slopes uh on the lower elevations at least and i, I just thought yeah this this looks pretty good over here compared to you know the ice box of southeast idaho my goodness it looked like my my deep freeze that i used to have that you know had a leak in the door and 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 all the air would filter in and freeze freeze like 3 inches of ice into the door i mean it 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 was just amazing around here clear into late march it was just uh, i just I just have not seen anything like it. You know, I was only 15, 16 in the 80s when we had those bad winters. So maybe my my memories faded a little bit. But man, it was just looked terrible out there.
1: Yeah, and obviously that same storm, uh, you know, affected um, Wyoming, Colorado, even Oregon had some effects from that, uh, that same Arctic, um, you know, storms that just piled on top of each other. And, uh, I think we were very lucky to just have it hit in, in, in one part of the state and not more. Um, so
0: yeah, compared to 92, 93, like you said, you know, that was West wide and coming off of, depends on how you, how you count it, but three to five years of drought. And, you know, that's always the recipe for disasters, hard winters after drought.
1: Absolutely, because lower body condition and they're just not. Yeah, w- winter. Winter is a uh, is a, is a significant factor in mule deer survival.
0: Well, we were talking about uh, twinning, and uh, you know, the last couple of years uh, scouting just different states and you know hunting different states. Boy, I saw a lot of twin deer. A lot. It was like noticeably high amounts of them. I I can't say, you know, every doe had twin fawns, but it was very, very common to see twin fawns the last couple of years.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that uh, we were actually poised to do with our, you know, we do season setting every other year. And, you know, we, our mule deer had actually started to recover from the 16, 17 19 was not really great in all places, but the deer were recovering and we had a bunch of uh, regions put in proposals um, that never, never saw the light of day to the public to increase uh, opportunity for antlerless and either sex hunting. And basically because of the winter, those were all pulled before the proposal process even started because it was, we knew that it was going to be a bad winter and we don't want you know, we don't want to harvest on you know our antlerless uh, portion of the population, you know a- after bad winters, so if they're so so we 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 did take some some measures to do that, obviously, and um, you know, the public never saw it, but yeah we we were poised and i I think that's an important thing that you know we are actively managing and actively monitoring weather every single year. Mm-hmm, um, yeah.
0: yeah, and we actually did see it, Toby, when the regulations came out. We saw that uh, uh, antlerless hunting was reduced uh, in many, many places. And we can talk about that, get a little more specific about it, but 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 I did notice that. And, and for those of you that haven't read my book, you know, I, I referenced it at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, Toby contributed a... Uh, an article in there, a chapter, an entire chapter uh, uh, titled The Perils of uh, Bucks Only Hunting. And he goes into, deeply into that on when uh, you should have antlerless harvest when you should not, and he just made the case for it right there. But as I've said on the podcast before, you know, don't don't ever paint me into a corner that I'm against shooting does, um, because that's one of the management tools that we can use when uh, it's biology uh, biologically feasible. And I, I'm I'm with Toby right now, and I was really glad to see when the regulations came out that they had trimmed uh, antlerless hunting and even eliminated it in many areas because it it, it just seems like a good way to react to a hard winner where yeah, I don't want to pick on fish and game, but there has been times, Toby, in the past, and you know, this is before we could be very reactive with season setting and doing things in real time, you know, g- good GPS data on significant sample sizes that you know, sometimes it was a few years later before we did anything on it. And so I like I like to see what Idaho did this year. And you said, you know, many of those proposals didn't even make it to the light of day because of the the data that was coming in and uh and i like it i, I, I give you guys a, a applause there for for being so reactive on it um and i know we set seasons every two years um it, it, is there a uh, a way to pull the plug on that in emergency situations uh because this year was our two-year season setting
1: year anyways right yeah absolutely and and the Commission and the department have the ability, in fact, you know, uh, we set two-year regs, but we print a new brochure every single year. And the commission meets in March. And um absolutely uh okay. yeah. we have we have adjusted uh tag levels uh in the off season, in the off-year, and absolutely we can make those changes if the if if it's needed. I mean, oftentimes when you set a season, um you know when you have annual changes to regulations you actually never get to see the effect of what that season is because in a year um you know gets changed again so letting a season framework soak for uh for two years is is often good because then we can see the effect of like how does it affect hunter opinion or hunter participation and all those things whereas one year It's sort of, you know, if you make a change and it surprises people, they might not take advantage of it or they, you know, it might be attract or repel people. And, you know, it takes a couple of years for it to actually sort of smooth out. So it's, it's a good year. It's a good thing to have multiple years between large season setting processes, but the department still has the ability to affect and change seasons on the fly every single year.
0: Well, thanks for clarifying that because I think it's just kind of at the rumor level that, oh, you know, once we're locked into the two years, you know, it, it doesn't matter if they go extinct; they're not going to change anything until the the season setting. and And it good good to hear it from the top here that that's that's not the case. And and I'm with you on you've got to have some time to set these regulations and see what kind of effect they have. Colorado does five years, so you know Idaho is even more reactive than Colorado. But as long as there's a you know stopgap measure in there where we can say, hey, wait a minute, things change drastically here. When we print the regulations, we can make these changes. And you know I've seen that over the last half a dozen years, uh, I'll get an email that, Hey, these, these hunt codes have been adjusted. Uh, you know, there there's always plenty of notice on it. And and, and so so good on fishing game. That I think that's a good way to react to what's going on. So um on this same theme, uh, can you give us an uh, uh, any specific on tag adjustments, both antlered and antlerless here across Idaho? Uh, I guess I'm when I say tag adjustments, I'm pretty much talking about controlled hunts. But I believe our antlerless is also hunted by the youth on some
1: years on the
0: general season.
1: Yeah, so that Southeast part upper snake part of the uh, of Idaho actually um we hadn't brought back antlerless youth hunting since the 2016-2017 winter so we don't uh we we don't have any in some places we do have antlerless youth hunting opportunities in other parts of the state but we had not actually brought that back um basically because we were just kind of coming out of the effects of the 2016-2017 bad winter so we did uh reduce a bunch of tags for um, pronghorn in eastern idaho
2: mm-hmm.
1: obviously pronghorn suffered um i don't have we don't have radio collared pronghorn uh in in great enough numbers but we definitely know that we we saw some greater than normal pronghorn mortality we also um made some hunts that were either sex into buck only hunts Mm -hmm. uh during the commission meeting and um so yeah we and and obviously by not moving forward on some of the hunts we had proposed you know i i think that was for either sex and antlerless hunting i think that was good I think the only antlerless hunt we move forward was uh, a very urban hunt to deal with um, basically deer in town, um, gotcha. and it was a pretty it's a pretty small effort, private land only um, effort. But you know, it's it's where we're having more human deer conflict issues than than worried about you know wild populations. Um,
0: all right and um and that, that you, you said something about some of our either sex hunts were adjusted to bucks only hunts which that's again kind of along this theme of you know we had a hard winter we need to protect the antlerless hunts I, I just hope we have long enough memories that when the deer herd does recover and i think it will recover that it's okay to add those back in cuz i've seen those go away over the years and sometimes not come back and 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 sometimes i think it's more social than it is biological because we just forget about the hunt code like it's gone where I liked what they did this year and they didn't eliminate the hunt code. They just said, Hey, we're going to take, we're going to drop antlerless off of it. And uh, my hope would be that when the deer herd recovers that then we can add them back in there. Uh, you and I have talked at length. You wrote a whole chapter in my book about, you know, the, about focusing all the pressure on bucks when you have, a uh, 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 left, I don't want to say leftover, uh, extra does to harvest, you know, that, that doesn't help your buck population. It actually reduces the number of bucks in it. And so on these years where people can antlerless hunt, uh, especially our youth, you know, we, we don't have to turn them all into buck hunters. And some of them are very happy to, Oh, I'll get a doe and I'm, 60 year old guy it's like oh man i'll take a nice fat doe over a buck and as long as they're only able to get one tag you know that reduces pressure on our buck so i, I was glad to see that you kept the hunt codes in there is what i was tr- trying to say with all that
1: absolutely and you know we 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 got rid of um we got rid of antlerless hunting in in other places you know because we have, we're, you know as we monitor populations um you know uh if, if the population appears even without the effects of winter that needs, you know, we don't need antlerless hunting anymore, we've reduced it. And, you know, I think that's, I think that's the important thing about being a wildlife manager is not sticking to something just because, uh, you know, you said it a year ago or two years ago, but when things change, react and, uh, and act accordingly.
0: Bravo. I think so, too. And I can I can honestly say living in Idaho my whole life, I think Idaho has moved that direction of being, you know, more more reactive and and able to kind of think on their feet when these things need change. And then also when they don't need change, not reacting to, you know, the emotion of, and a lot, a lot of times it's just a real small cohort of the public. And, and you know, the group I run with can be just as guilty of it, you know, the big buck hunters, because uh, they think very narrowly. That uh, you know, sometimes that, that that's how they want everything managed, and it 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 Idaho's done a good job walking the line, is what I'm trying to say.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, deer management is about you know about managing you know the amount of opportunity and outcomes, and you know, obviously, Idaho is Idahoans, you know, from every human dimension survey that we've done. The most important thing to the average idaho hunter is to hunt every year Mm -hmm. and it doesn't you know obviously they have the opportunity to um put in for controlled hunts uh that might give them different opportunities uh but and and have higher percentage you know success rates but for the for the for the rank and file idaho hunter it's it's being able to go and whether you, you know, and, 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 and a lot of that is more complex than just harvesting a deer. It's mm-hmm. about family. It's about mm-hmm. tradition.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's about a million different things. And, you know, we, and they put a high value on it.
0: Yes, they do. Survey after survey after survey comes back. And that's, uh, that's what we've seen. And, and yet when I hear people saying, oh, fishing game, just doing it so they can buy new trucks. Oh man, go drive by the region office here and look at how many new trucks are in that parking lot. I I don't see very many. And, um, um, and, and when you're limiting people from hunting for too long, some of them quit hunting. And and I know there's guys who are like, yeah, that's what I want. Uh, well, that, that's not going to ensure long-term wildlife management here in America under the North American uh wildlife model you know we've got to have participation to to fund these these game and fish agencies and and i I've, i was lucky as a young man to get to volunteer at, at fishing and game and i'll just tell a lot of people no one's getting pig rich over there and uh, uh it, it takes a lot of money to to manage wildlife and having hunter participation is where that money comes from so we won't hijack the podcast too much with all that toby but um but moving into the state of idaho mule deer you know it we just talked about the winter. Yeah, we're down right now. Yeah, probably going to be here for a little bit. But uh, what 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 are we long term right now in Idaho mule deer populations? Are are we close to objective or are we way below objective? You know, what what where are we at with
1: what you guys are seeing? So that's a great question, and we do not have a statewide population objective. We have objectives for. Uh, buck doe ratios to maintain them over 15 bucks per hundred does. Um, we have objectives for um you know uh, obviously to to maintain healthy populations but as far as it goes a statewide number we we don't we don't have that objective if you look at the um Statewide we actually are because of some of the great work that our research folks are doing we actually now develop a bounded statewide estimate which is pretty amazing um and the 2023 and that is of course uh estimate um for deer as it's the i'm sorry it's the it's the 20 it's 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 it actually, is produced in 2023, but it's actually for 2022. Right, and it's we figure we have about 265,000 mule deer in Idaho.
0: Okay, and to, just for the listeners, an objective is like a goal. So what you're saying is there's not a statewide goal for mule deer, but we do have a number based on what our researchers are finding through 2022 20, of 265,000 mule deer in Idaho.
1: Yes. And that number has fluctuated um, to give you an example in, in 2015, when you know we had lots of people hunting and some of the highest mule deer harvest we've seen in decades, uh, our estimate was uh, about 303,000.
2: Okay, so, gotcha. so it, it fluctuates down the, there.
1: Yeah, it it fluctuates, but obviously, um, long term average is definitely well over two hundred and fifty thousand, and and I think that uh, yeah, we'll, we we obviously will keep monitoring and and producing those population estimates.
0: Yeah, so we're really only down about fifteen percent from our high of two thousand fifteen um and uh and 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 yet our long-term average has floated around two hundred and fifty thousand. so 265 that's not too bad of a number no and now if we lost if those were through 2022 at least the doe portion and the fawn portion of that could be lower than you know because though that the winter has not been count factored into that yet right
1: that's correct yeah and we'll 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 obviously see some changes with that with our 2023 estimate which will come out you know probably in the early in 2024
0: yeah and and to put it in perspective you remember jeff short he used to work in our office he's in wyoming now um i I went and worked on one of their mortality studies in wyoming a couple of years ago and and he said it it kind of blew my mind because i didn't really think about it this way but he says i the year i was there was 2019 as you remember we had a, a pretty rough, rough winter that year too especially in the spring it just kind of never let up february was terrible so we had high higher fawn mortality but you know he said I, he always tries to remember with his deer herd might have the numbers might not have it exactly right but um with the wyoming range he says i always try to remember that somewhere in the first week of june we're going to add another 30,000 deer to the population of a a population that was, I can't remember, 50, 60, you know, but I think it was based on, you know, every doe having a a fawn and a half or something, whatever it was, it was just a mind boggling amount of deer. Like, wow. Yeah. We can, we, we can kill them fast, but we can, we can grow them fast too.
1: Absolutely. And you know, the same population estimate gives us how many fawns we have. And in 2022, we, we introduced ninety three thousand new fawns. That'
0: amazing. Yeah that that that's what I that's what I was trying to get at. Is just you know that as these numbers kind of go up and down, like oh really really hard winter, but yeah, God hits the reset button every spring, and mm-hmm. and and we get a whole bunch in there, and yeah, a lot of this is dependent on the habitat conditions. You and I are going to talk about all that on on getting those fawns to adulthood. And you said at the beginning of the podcast, you're long-term average is only 50% of them survive their first year. It's, you know, it's not like we keep all 90,000 of them, but it, it, it's also not accurate to think that we can't recover from, from these winners and these. Uh, absolutely. Down.
1: We, we have been recovering from these winters for millennia um, and yeah, we'll, and mule deer will keep on doing it as, as, as long as, uh, as long as we have the habitat
2: to do it.
0: OnX Hunt is the number one GPS hunting app in the industry and one reason they're leading is because they're continually providing updates to the Onex Hunt app. Updates like the new Onex in navigation suite. From the time you slide into the seat of your vehicle viewing Onex Hunt with CarPlay and Android Auto allows you to easily flow from Onex to the road in front of you ensuring you know exactly where you are and how to get where you're heading. Want directions to a certain point in the OnX Hunt app, but don't want to keep glancing at your phone? Use the Navigate To feature to navigate to your saved waypoints. This is true off-road navigation for hunters. You can now use the OnX Hunt app hands-free and have access to your map markups, public private boundaries, routing, offline maps, and more. Do it all from the seat of your truck. If you're ready to make the jump, save 20% by using the code ROCKCAST at checkout. So 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 launching from that then, um what what is Idaho doing to conserve mule deer and to grow mule deer long term? I, I I was part of the mule deer initiative for years. I don't hear as much about it now. I believe it's still going. Uh, but what what is Idaho doing?
1: You know, it- I, th- I think the most important thing to mule deer, obviously, um, is a place place to live and and good habitat. And I think one of the most important things that Idaho Fishing Game does is is works on large scale habitat work. Um, obviously, the mule deer initiative still continues. Um, you know, the job title has changed a little bit and expanded, so we're we're doing more and more places with more things and leveraging a lot of different funding to make mule deer habitat better. Obviously working um, with federal land managers to private land managers. Um, you know, one of the things that we're focusing on a lot, of course, is is these catastrophic, catastrophic fire recoveries mm-hmm. and figuring out plans and being available as experts to help um, Land management agencies that are dealing with the aftermath of a large fire uh, is super important because we can sort of make sure that mule deer and mule deer habitat are considered, you know, during the plans to recover it. And, you know, it's hard. When I first got here, not long after I came uh, there was a fire called the Murphy Fire, which burned 700,000 acres in three days
2: mm-hmm.
1: in, in southern Idaho, southern Idaho yep. west of west of Twin Falls. And, you know, it was premier, amazing mule deer habitat, like bitter, bitter brush and sagebrush over your head. Just amazing. And in three days, it became a big plain. The moon, the the moon, and we worked really hard, spent a lot of um, sportsman's dollars to help make that habitat better, and and it is coming back. Obviously, it affected mule deer, pronghorn, sage grouse—you know, two, three very important species to Idaho—and and it is coming back. It is it is doing better, and but yet you know, the more we can do to sort of stop fires um, that are happening on the, on the landscape, because what happens often if in places, even if we do take action on, on to recover habitat quicker is that, you know, we get these annual grasses, which, you know, in June, they look great, but you know, they're not, they're not ideal mule deer forage, you know, mule deer I don't want to go down a big rabbit trail, but mule deer have one of the shortest gut lengths. So if you took and laid out their gut and compared it to their body size, they're one of the shortest of any Western ungulate, uh, whereas elk have a very, very long gut. So And what that equates to is a mule deer takes a lot higher quality vegetation to actually get something out of it than than an animal with a longer gut so longer gut animals can actually eat lower quality forage and actually still get nutrients out of it where mule deer high quality forage is so important to them and that comes in the form of forbs which are leaves not necessarily grasses and if you look at mule deer diets definitely those small leafy plants are the most important to mule deer and I think that, uh, you know, when you go to, a, when you have a fire and when you have a landscape turn into an annual grass, it, it's, it's really hard on mule deer. And there's, the carrying capacity of that ground is diminished.
0: For a long time. For a very long time. And, and the elk love it, the deer hate it. Absolutely. Yep. That's been, that's been my experience. Um, but again, this kind of gets back to license dollars and funding our, our state fish and game departments too. That's, that's why it's important for them to have the funding. Uh, when people like it or not, that funding comes through license sales. So if we can sell licenses, if it's, it's biologically appropriate, we need to sell it because we're going to need that money for habitat acquisition and habitat recovery. He just gave you a an example with the Murphy fire and, um, and with habitat acquisition, when we actually own the habitat or, or, or in some partnership with the habitat where we're fishing game can have a say and an active part in maintaining that habitat, that, that is huge too. And I can give an example. You'll, you'll remember Paul Faulkner and Terry Thomas, you worked in their same office. Absolutely. Um, yeah. The Tex Creek wildlife management area. I used to go up there and fix, fence with paul and i remember him and terry both telling me that you know and this was in the in the 90s they were they were both telling me that you know the texquif Texquik wildlife management area sits right on the edge of of, of uh, the bustling metropolis of idaho falls we'll call it and you know by, by western standards it is growing by leaps and bounds here and they said hey in in, in 2025 20, years th- this will be the buffer that will allow us to, to, to continue to have deer and elk in unit 69 and 66A and 76, and all the units that those, that those deer and elk come from for, for wintering, you know, that, that, uh, that the fishing game, owning it or being in partnerships with it and in partnerships with the state and managing that ground, that's, what's going to ensure the, the future survival of wildlife, because if they don't have it, it's going to become developed. Well, it was just like a prophecy. Here we are 25 years later, you can drive up there. And other than the Henry Creek fire, it really has not changed much up there. There's, there's, you know, no development there, you know, there's a little bit of agriculture that's always been there and it, it's still in great shape. And I'm so thankful that we have it and that, that you know fishing game did what they could to secure that, and you know it's a. It, speaking of rabbit holes, that's one too. I mean, they had to go through a whole legislative process because, as fishing game owned ground up there, it took the money out of the the tax base, and I can't remember what that law was called. You know, payment in lieu of taxes. Do you know what I'm talking about? Exactly, fee in lieu of taxes. Fee in lieu of taxes. Fishing game had to pay fees on that ground to 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 be able to offset. Taking it out of the tax base because if a pri- it was mostly owned by private landowners and fishing game bought the, these parcels as they became for sale, well then the the naysayers were saying, well now there's no money coming into the tax base. So so anyways, these things are complicated. But at the end of the day, what I'm trying to get at it's it's important to fund our fishing game. It really is if we're gonna have wildlife for the future even the near future it, it's super important that that we get involved in these conversations and understand what people like Toby Boudreau of the Idaho Department of Fish and Game are are doing out there to conserve our wildlife and uh that's that's what's going to ensure that we have it for the future. are we have we got any completed studies or ongoing studies of how Idaho are affecting mule deer in, 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 in anything going on like that?
1: That's a great question. And, you know, it's um, the effects of elk on mule deer have been studied for more than four decades. And what it's commonly called is deer elk competition. Um, And, you know, if you look at the sum total of all the research that's been done, There are places and studies that show that there is an adverse effect of elk on mule deer and other places it's inconclusive. I think some of the latest work that's coming out of uh, the University of Wyoming does show that mule deer don't prefer to be in the company of elk, that elk outcompete them for vegetation in some areas but like i said that we've been looking at that work for at least four decades if not more um i remember 12 13 years ago i gave a talk to the western association of fish and wildlife agencies commissioners committee on on elk deer competition in the west um because there you know it's 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 a it's a Perennial topic for people.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Obviously, um, if the habitat is more conducive to elk, elk will do better.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the, you know, one of the one of the other interesting aspects of this is, you know, in a mule deer hunter study, uh, where we asked mule deer opinion hunter, mule deer opinions and attitudes, we asked if people were more interested in man in in the department managing some areas to benefit one species over another and uh, obviously uh, you know the results of that said that uh, people really like to have both um unfortunately you know if there's if there's a foot of vegetation we'll just give a a, a rough example if there's a foot tall of vegetation on a landscape and and half of it is eaten by elk you know there's the you know there's less less for deer Mm -hmm. um and you know you have to make that choice can we manage for higher elk populations absolutely can we manage for higher mule deer populations absolutely Um, in some places we do um you know focus on mule deer as a primary species and other places we you know elk elk is a, is a more primary species but really i think it a lot of it comes down to the habitat that exists and these large scale wildfires uh, definitely seem to be creating more elk habitat at least over the short term than than mule deer habitat and and it's super important because As, you know, some people joke around with it, but it's really true is, you know, the average Idaho hunter likes to eat elk and hunt deer. (laughs) Yep. I hear it
0: all the time. Absolutely. Yeah, well, and 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 I I shot my first elk last fall in like twenty five years because I'm I'm kind of buying into that now too. Like, hey, we'll let a few more of these bucks grow up, and let's put some pressure on these cow elk that are that are over objective in some of these units. And 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 you brought something up a second ago that was actually on my outline as a sub question. If, if fishing game is recognizing areas that hey, this is this is primarily for mule deer, and this area is better for elk, are we crafting regulations to? put more pressure on elk that are invading? I don't know if the word invading is right, but elk that are trying to inhabit mule deer habitat. Like, has has it got to that level where we're actually like, no, we're going to manage for mule deer in this area and we're going to reduce an elk population. That's what I'm trying to get at. Is that happening?
1: At at, at some level, yes. I mean, obviously, you know, people um, can look at our regulations and see that we have seasons that start on, the 30th of august and go to the end of the year um Mm -hmm. for elk um but yet we only have a two-week deer season Mm -hmm. Um, you know those those places yeah and and sometimes it's not necessarily a simple managing one species over another but because elk uh, are a species that tend to get in more trouble uh with conflict with um Agricultural producers that we definitely have a lot of areas in the state where we we have managed for less elk because of those issues and mule deer have benefited from that. And, you know, I, I think one of the other important points is if you look back, like at a map of Idaho elk populations at when the department became an official department in 1938, after the Sportsman's Initiative, really there were elk populations right along the the Yellowstone park border. Mm -hmm. And there there were elk populations in the Clearwater region. And over that next 50 years, we put elk in a lot of places. Some states actually, neighboring states actually put elk in places that ended up coming to Idaho. Nevada is a good example.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, so, so some of the, some of the distribution of elk has definitely been affected by department programs
2: mm-hmm.
1: because more people wanted to hunt elk.
0: Do you know, I, I, Idaho is managed by elk zones. How many of our zones are over objective for elk in idaho now in 2022
1: i believe that's a great question robbie and from memory of developing that recent map that's in the regulations, which I actually could look at here real quick.
0: Sorry to ambush you with that, but I just got thinking about that. You know, moving from 1938, you know, to very small elk populations, just in a few areas. And then these transplant efforts and, you know, habitat change, the other things we've talked about. Uh, where are we now? Almost a hundred years later. And with wolves on the landscape.
1: So 12, uh, just uh, looking at the bulk, Population objectives for elk statewide, 12 of our elk zones are above objective. And how many elk zones do we have? We have uh, 28.
0: 28. So roughly a third of them might might be over. And 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 about a third third of them
1: are below objective and a third of them are within objective. So, gotcha
0: and uh, the, uh, from what i understand the ones that are below objective uh that's kind of that north central idaho stuff locksaw the 10 12 those those areas up in there is that correct
1: yeah obviously the low low selway um middle fork uh, sawtooth um yeah those those are some of the places that that are below objective and that some some are below objective on cow and above objective on or within objective on bulls and Mm -hmm. and you can see that map um on the uh, in the fish and game regs as just at the beginning of the elk section oh you can actually see that that current map of where we are meeting objective that's great.
0: I'll go check that out. I, I missed that in there. I always go straight to the deer section. So I'll I'll have to pull that <laughs> up. But that but that's interesting right there, you know, roughly a third of our our uh, zones are, are over objective and and it it seems like around all these population centers, you know, everything you just named that's below objective is kind of our wilderness. Backcountry type stuff, extreme backcountry stuff. Some of that's the, the most extreme backcountry in the lower forty-eight, and and yet you know on some of these other you know eastern and southern Idaho and
1: uh, elk are doing
0: great, and and it, it just amazes me how what an adaptable species that they are.
1: Yeah, and uh, absolutely.
0: Well, um, as we get to the end here, we had chatted just briefly offline here. Uh, Where are we at with CWD specifically in Idaho here? Uh, Again, these things just, draw out so much emotion in people that I always like to get someone on that's got the facts here. You know, if I listen to the average guy, my goodness, I I don't want to buy a license. I want to quit hunting and, you know, there's nothing left. And and yet when I talk to people like you, sometimes that's not what I hear. Now, I don't know what you're going to say because I just told you that, hey, we'll talk about this. Where are we at with CWD in Idaho? So I guess,
1: um, you know, Pulling back on the on the stick and and looking at it from a higher level, you know, there's 30 states now in the United States that have CWD. Mm -hmm. Um, It's grown considerably. Idaho was number 27. And since then, three more states have, have added positive detections of chronic wasting disease. We have been monitoring for CWD since 1997 um on average uh up until when we detected cwd we were taking about a thousand samples statewide so we have a cwd um strategic plan that the last version of it was actually it gets updated annually now but the last big rewrite of that was in 2018. it can be found on our website and what it is now is that we have, um, we've adapted, it's it's a very adapted plan. And, you know, that area along the Wyoming border um, has constantly been sampled for chronic wasting disease in harvest road kills. And then when Montana found CWD in, in and around the Libby area, we added the panhandle. So the panhandle of Idaho and the Eastern border, um, between Idaho falls and the Utah border have are pretty, are sampled continuously every year. And our sampling year actually starts on July 1st and goes all the way to June 30th. So we have folks out picking up roadkill, taking samples in there. We do know that, you know, in some States, they found CWD positive animals in roadkill five years before the first hunter, um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is because as an animal succumbs to CWD, they become less wary and end up have a higher potential for being um, hit by a car. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as our positive detection, that was in November of 2021. Mm -hmm. And that was part of a rotating. So the rest of the state that isn't every year sampled um, at a high level uh, the rest of the state rotates around and we found it in unit 14, uh, which is just north of Riggins, between Riggins and Whitebird, Idaho, and found it in two mule deer with the first two positives. That year, we had five positives total, a couple white tails, whitetails and, and an elk, uh, very, very focused area. Um, and we went in later in that same year and um you know obviously tried to collect as many samples as we could in 2022 we increased the harvest um, of mule deer in there increased the whitetail harvest um, just sort of increase our sample to understand sort of the distribution of the disease and and to try to get an idea of prevalence, which is prevalence just means how many, what is the percentage of animals? What is the estimate of the number of animals on the landscape that could be positive? And remember that CWD, there are multiple variants of it. And some of those variants animals can live a decade before Mm -hmm. they succumb to it. And other ones, you know, perish quite quickly. Mm -hmm. So it, we we know it's positive we know it's in unit 14 we checked um in 2022 we added hunts around unit 14 to sort of bolster our sample to see if we could detect any any positives outside of unit 14 and all those have been negative so right now it's it's mostly focused in a couple drainages in unit 14 we actually um did a removal project where we actually worked with private landowners and uh, a department effort and we removed 527 deer and elk this spring Um, i think we ended in march um, with that program and we definitely detected some more cwd we actually took every carcass um marked it and then uh kept it in a cooler and then once we get got the samples back um and knew which ones were positive those animals were actually um those carcasses were um, were disposed of and all the other carcasses were actually salvaged and distributed um, to needy families Gotcha. So so I follow that just a little bit. And um and and what
0: would you say to the sportsman, the concerned uh wildlife user that says, Hey, we're we're killing more deer trying to increase our sample size for the study than CWD is actually taking.
1: So part of part of the you know, CWD has basically been around since the mid sixties. Uh, it was first detected in the, in the mid in like 1967.
0: Captive deer in Colorado. Correct?
1: Yes, sir. And what we, what we know is that if prevalence rates get too high, we know that CWD tends to spread at a faster rate. So our, our strategic plan says that if we find CWD then we're going to keep prevalence rates somewhere in the 2% range because that is going to reduce the ability for the disease to spread. We know that it affects whitetail deer differently than mule deer and differently than elk. Um, We know that bucks of either species, whitetail or mule deer, move more than does Mm -hmm. and so bucks tend to be the ones that spread it farther because they go on journeys outside of their mother's home range um and end up you know spreading it so the thing is is that you know what other states who have been dealing with it for decades have found in those places where we've done research on it is that keeping an age structure of the buck population lower, younger is important. And keeping prevalence as low as possible is also important. So yes, obviously, um, it, it's, it's a choice. Um, some states um, have not um, engaged in 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 management uh, of the disease at varying levels you know it it so the thing is is that Idaho is trying to learn from all the other states that have that are already going through it and have gone through it and are in it um you know one of the sad things is is that once it comes to your neck of the woods it never leaves mm-hmm. it's it, it's held in the soil it's held in the vegetation we just got a pay i just got a paper that said um you know t- ticks can take on prions. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is the um, that is the protein that basically causes uh, chronic wasting disease is, is called yeah. a prion. Yeah. And
2: yeah.
1: so the thing is, is that w- I think we are um, being aggressive about maintaining it the smallest area possible. We do know that from the chron- the Center for Disease Control, they recommend not not eating cwd positive deer um but no one has it has never made the the animal human jump and some people choose obviously in states where it's been around for decades some people choose to get their animal tested other ones don't want to know uh obviously uh you know where I hunt uh, oftentimes uh, is close to the Montana border, and I get my animals tested. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'd, I'd like to know. I, I don't, uh, but that's sort of a personal choice. And I think that giving everybody the information they need—if you—if ha- you harvest a deer, elk, antelo- or deer, elk, moose uh, in Idaho, uh, we will test your deer um you can come by a regional office you can stop a game warden on the road you can mail in the sample um, What whatever we have videos on our website about how to take samples you know we will test your deer and uh, get those results back to you hopefully within that three to four week time period basically we 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 process we get those samples in process them, send them to the lab as quick as we can. And their turnaround is usually, you know, on the order of, of two to three weeks. So. Um, gotcha. Well, mm-hmm. we
0: don't we don't want it to spread, and and we're thankful for the efforts that uh, that you and other states are doing. And that's what's great about having this big experiment of the United States having all these different states that can run different management programs and see what kind of effect that we can have. I think just as sportsmen's, we just we want to evolve with the data. And you know, Colorado made made a big decision to lower their age class on their bucks, and. I'm sure the data is out there, I'm sure the information is out there, but I, I still have not got a clear answer on how low does that age class have to go to prevent these bucks from spreading CWD from, from one herd to another herd, unlike the does who might just lock down in the same little canyon, you know, year round and not spread it. And I, I, so as sportsmen, I guess my my concern and some of the people I talk to are concerned is, um, yeah, CWD's here, it's probably here to stay. And, uh, we just hope our containment efforts don't, um, nece- unnecessarily reduce deer numbers, buck to doe ratios to, to a point that's not needed. And, and, and I don't expect you to be able to answer that because it seems like we're just kind of getting to that now where states are starting to manage for that. Um, but that, that's, that's where my thoughts come from on it. And, um, anything else you want to add to that, Toby?
1: Well, you know, I guess the, Yeah, there is, and that is that you know, if CWD levels prevalence levels get too high, we do know that there are states that are seeing population level declines in deer populations. Mm -hmm. Now, forty years ago, people theorized that deer populations would go to zero. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Obviously, that 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 has never happened. So, Mm -hmm. um, in fact, next week um, I'll be at a international CWD symposium in, in in Colorado. To learn more about cwd and the current state of research and i think that that that's the other thing is uh, you know staying up with the current information as far as buck doe ratio goes and what i've learned from other states that are engaged in trying to reduce uh you know the spread and prevalence is that you know the buck doe ratio actually they don't decline that much it's really the age structure and yeah it you 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 have less of that four or five six year old age class in some of those areas but that also does reduce the rate of spread and uh and I think it the, the...
0: Oh, okay well and thanks for clarifying that yeah because there is a difference between between bucks to dough ratio and age class and and I and I use that term interchangeably sometimes so what what the, what like rephrase my question is so how low do you have to reduce the age class to reduce this transmission because i see these little bucks with just two points and three points and they're horny as the day is long they are running all over the place you know and so to me just from a layman's perspective which is absolutely what my perspective is is i'm like it seems to me like you'd have to kill all the bucks to get them to not travel
1: Yeah, and I I guess that's a great question, Robbie, and I I think that we're still learning. I think states that have been engaged in this, you know, most of the activity with trying to manage for lower prevalence has all come out really in the last four or five years, decade maybe, at the most. Yeah, and, but fair and, enough. And that's and I, and I don't think we know yet. But I think the important thing is, is that we are doing the work on it. Um, we are trying to get as many samples as possible in those areas that we believe um, it could either crop up or currently is in, and and letting people know about it. You know, I think the most important thing is m- letting people make per- informed decisions about that. And uh, you know, it, it's 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 a horrible thing. It it, it really is. And um, you know, it's uh, we 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 went a long time without detecting it, and and that was good. And and hopefully we can keep the spread down, and 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 have it as slow, if not stopped, as possible. For the
0: gotcha. Future. Yeah, and that's that's an acceptable answer for where we're at right now. And uh, sounds like as, as you're headed to the symposium, that's a question you could take to them because there's a whole bunch of us. We're willing to take a hit for the team if 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 we have to reduce the age class on our our bucks to prevent or slow the spread of CWD, uh, we're willing to do it. But we want to know that it's making a difference. That's that's what we want to know. And I realize four or five years and. In the research world is not very long, but you know, hopefully in 10 years we have a better answer on that. And you know, Colorado's three years into their test uh, give or take a year. And in NAF, it shows that, Hey, we can, we can conserve deer better by having a younger age class. I I guess that's that it is what it is. But if it's, if it's not making a big difference, and I just gave you the case of that, I see young bucks traveling very far. In fact, in the fall, when I'm tracking deer and I see a young buck track and it's after about November 5th, Oh, man, I'm glad I'm not following him because I know he's going to go a long ways because he can't get any does from these bigger bucks that are controlling these herds. Where a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times, if I find a bigger buck, he's kind of a homebody. As long as the does are in heat there, you know, he's not traveling far. Again, completely anecdotal, completely a layman perspective. Um, uh, and we'll kind of end it with that right there, unless you have anything else to add.
1: No, I, th- I think you're right. And I think, uh, you know, from our perspective, learning as much as we can and using that data, you know, to formulate our adaptive next move, I think is important. And, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll keep everybody informed as we go on.
0: That's all we can ask right there. And so everybody, that's Toby Boudreau of the Idaho State, Idaho Fishing Game. He's the Idaho State Deer and Elk Coordinator. As you can see, he is a wealth of information, Uh, 18 years here in the state of Idaho, working on high level mule deer and elk stuff. No better resource to have on the Rockcast. That's one reason I invited him. And I really thank you for coming on today, Toby. I think people should go follow him. Uh, You can find him on Instagram at T as in Terry, B as in Boy, O U D, T T Bull, T Bood, I guess is how you would say that. Uh that's on Instagram. Uh you're also on Facebook. Is that correct? Yes, sir. All right. And is it is it Toby Boudreaux on Facebook? Yep. B O U D R E A U. And even though he doesn't post a lot, he's a good guy to know. And while you're there on Instagram, follow Idaho Fishing Game. All one big word Idaho Fishing Game. Look him up on Facebook. Um, all of us need to be educated sportsmen. Otherwise, we just live on emotion. And those are great resources right there for you to stay in touch with. And Toby, when you come back from the CWD Symposium, you've, you've got a, a free pass to come back on the Rockcast. If there's anything you want to update us with, uh, share with and of course anything mule deer elk in idaho you're always welcome on the podcast
1: i appreciate that robbie and yeah we'll uh we'll we'll talk after i get back see see what new things uh are uh emerging through the research and uh management of uh, chronic wasting disease which is important for us
0: excellent thanks for your time again toby all
1: right you take care robbie have a good day